when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ecclesia in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's recorded that we should not, he says to the Corinthians, fall after the way that the children of Israel fell in the wilderness. He says that they were our examples, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we shouldn't make the same mistakes that they made. And I just want you to note in verse 5 that it says that with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now that word overthrow, that Greek word that's translated there overthrown for us, is only used on this one occasion. It's the Greek word kastronumi. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, as most of you will know, um, but, but it's something like that. It's this Greek word kastronumi. And why it's interesting, it's the word that we get our word, catastrophic. So for many in the wilderness journey, their fall was catastrophic. Their journey was literally a catastrophe because they didn't, having left Egypt and walked through the wilderness, they didn't enter the promised land. And so it strikes me that it is essential that we look at the example that the Apostle Paul is inspired to put in front of us of the children of Israel as they come to the brink of the promised land that we also don't, as it were, fall into catastrophe. So come with me back to the record in Numbers. I'd like us to go further back than Numbers 25. I'd like us to begin our story in chapter 21, just to be reminded that the children of Israel are now approaching the promised land They've tried to come up um, through the wilderness of Zin from Kadesh Barnea into the land, but of course the Edomites wouldn't let them pass through. We see that in chapter 20. And so they have to skirt the Edomite territory. They have to go all the way back down to the Dead Sea and back up round Edom. And they come to the Moabite territory and they send messages to Sihon, king of the Amorites, Numbers 21, verse 21, saying, let us pass through your land. We won't turn in the fields or the vineyards. You won't drink of the waters, the well. We'll go along by the king's highway until we've passed your borders. And Sihon wouldn't let them pass. And so Sihon, king of the Amorites, is destroyed. And we just notice in verse 26 that the children of Israel took the Amorite cities including Heshbon, verse 26, and Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all the land out of his hand, even to Arnon. So Sihon was king of all this territory, this Amorite king, uh, including over the Moabite territory. And then you remember that they, they don't stop here, despite the fact that they're only just a little to the east of the Jordan, and at this point, it would make sense in many respects for them to cross the Jordan and go to Jericho, which we know is the first city they come to. But no, God wants them to go north. Verse 33, we read that they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out. And of course, Og was destroyed. So read verse 35. 
So they smote him and his sons and all his people until there was none left him alive and they possessed his land. And so the children of Israel have gone up through the Moabite territory. They're on the screen. They've gone all the way up to deal with old king of Bashan. You can just about see Bashan there on their map to the east of the Galilee. And then they come back down and they camp. We put a yellow circle there on the map. In the plains of Moab, verse, chapter 22 and verse 1, in the plains of Moab, on this side, Jordan, by, we're told, Jericho. Well, they're 10 miles to the east of the Jericho, uh, of the city Jericho. And they can literally see from the hilltops the land. They can see the Jordan River flowing down. They can see this land that's a lush land. You remember that when the spies came back, they came back with the produce of this land. They've just witnessed the giants of Sihon and Og being destroyed. They've seen walls collapse. And you remember that the spies were fearful of the giants and the walls. And so here they are on the brink of the land. And their circumstances, brethren and sisters and young people, are surely not dissimilar to our own. We believe, don't we? Many of you, I hope all of you, were listening last night uh, to our brother Alistair's Signs of the Times talk. And he showed us numerous scores and scores of signs of the times in the world right now. All of which tell us that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not far away. We stand, as it were, in the plains of Moab. If you look carefully enough to the west of you, you can see the Jordan. You can see the Judean hills rising up. You can see the promised land coming into view. The lesson that's put on record for us here is essential for us in the last days before we cross the Jordan. And you'll remember that in Numbers chapter 22, Balak, who now has become the king of Moab because Sihon's been destroyed, Balak wants rid of these people. He wants rid of these Israelites. And he's heard that Balaam is able to curse the people. And so we read in Numbers 22 and verse 6 that Balak says to Balaam uh, through the messengers, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. They're too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them. Now I want you to note that, that he wants to smite them, that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. But Balaam who knows Yahweh, the God of Israel, knows very well that he is unable to curse this people. And so although Balak continually asks Balaam to curse the people, Balaam is not able to. I just want you to note in verse 11, Balak asks Balaam to curse me then. In verse 17, at the end of the verse, I pray thee, curse me this people. In verse, chapter 23, verse 11, verse 13, 
Chapter 23, verse 25, verse 27. Chapter 24, verse 10. Ten times, Balak asked Balaam to curse the people. That Hebrew word is only used on 11 occasions, and 10 of them we see recorded from the mouth of Balak, who wants the children of Israel cursed. So verse 17, at the end of the verse, we read, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam, verse 18 of chapter 22, answered and said unto the servants of Balak, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I can't go beyond the word of Yahweh my God to do less or more. He could give me everything, but I can't do it, he says. Now, therefore, I pray thee, Tarry here also this night, that I may know what Yahweh may say to me more. He should have sent them away, shouldn't he? But Balaam, we know from the records in Jude and in Peter, in 2 Peter 2, we've put the verse there on the screen, verses 13 to 15. Balaam loved, that word loved is the Greek word agape. That's how much he was willing to sacrifice everything for the wages of unrighteousness. This man, I want you to note, loved the wages of unrighteousness. And we can compare him, because I would suggest to you that the inspired record enables us to do this, with Judas. You remember that Judas was a thief. He kept the money bags. Judas wanted the money. He wanted the rewards here and now. He wasn't prepared to wait in faith to cross the Jordan. He wanted here and now the rewards, sadly, of iniquity, of unrighteousness. That word reward, I put it there on the screen for us in Acts 1 verse 18, Judas, this man, purchased a field with the reward. That's our same Greek word as the word wages in 2 Peter 2, verse 13 or 14, 15. I can't remember which verse it is. You'll have to look at it for me. It's also the same Greek word we've got in Revelation 22, where in verse 12, we read the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, we understand, don't we, brethren, sisters and young people, that salvation isn't given to us according to works. In fact, a lot of this study is going to bring out that it's not according to works. It's not after the law. Rather, it's after faith. So we understand, don't we, that it's our faith that drives us to work. So when we're told I come quickly in my reward, the wages that I've got, the Lord Jesus Christ says, are with me to give every man according as his work. We don't need to find ourselves thinking, well, let me list the works that I've done this week or, or last week or last year. Far from. None of us can earn crossing the Jordan. It's through our faith and belief in these things that we certainly do work for the Lord. Come on to Numbers 25. 
where we read that the children of Israel are abiding in Shittim. Now, here they are. We're told in Numbers 22 and verse 1 at the, in the plains of Moab. So Shittim then is the specific place that they're at in this place. And the word Shittim means acacia. It's the idea of the acacia trees or the acacia bushes. And it's the word thorns. So there's lessons here for us, aren't there? Very obvious lessons. Israel abode in Shittim. And they're going to be in dire trouble here because many are going to fall among the thorns. 24,000, we're told in verse 9, are going to die in this plague. Just keep a marker in Numbers 25, but we ought to go to Luke, Luke chapter 8, because we read there, don't we, the parable of the sower, where the Lord Jesus Christ tells us of the danger of falling among the thorns. So Luke 8 and verse 7, we read that some of the seed fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. So what are the thorns? Verse 14, they which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Balaam, Judas, they got caught ultimately in the thorns. They wanted the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And as a result, they brought no fruit to perfection. Now, I want you just to note this phrase, verse 14, they which fell among thorns are they which when they have heard. When they have heard. So the people that hear the message, but actually they go out and they're choked with the cares and the pleasures of this life. Those people, sadly, allow themselves to be caught up with the thorns. Now, come back to the Numbers record. In Numbers 25, we read, don't they, don't we, of the fact that the people, the Moabites, verse 2, call the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. So the Moabites, and most likely the Moabite women particularly, who are sent into the camp by Balaam in his last attempt, as it were, to curse the people. He tries to do it. He's unable to do it in the words of his mouth. But his final attempt is the plan that he's concocted with Balaam to send the Midianite women into the camp. And it's the Simeonites. And the Simeonites, of course, their name means heard. And they hear the call of the people. Now you may say, well, why do we think it's the Simeonites? Well, the most obvious reason is that in verse 14, the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Salo, a prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. So the key character, if you like, um, in this 
um, passage that brings about this plague, it seems, amongst the people, or, or, or is part of the plague coming among the people, is Zimri, a Simeonite. But we're actually given more evidence than that, aren't we? Because in the numbers record, which we're in, when you turn to chapter 26, you'll see that there's a second numbering of the tribes of Israel. In verse 14, we read, these are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. Now, earlier on in the book of Numbers, we won't go there for time, in chapter 1 and verse 23, if you look at next to verse 14 in your margin, I'm sure you'll have 123. Perhaps make a note of that, circle it. Back then, the Simeonite tribe numbered 59,300. So what has happened to decimate the Simeonite tribe? Well, clearly many will have died out in the wilderness. But for it to be such a major drop in the size of the tribe, we would suggest that of the 24,000 in Numbers 25 and verse 9 that died, thousands upon thousands of them would have been Simeonites. And when you think about it geographically, the Simeonites there are in the middle of the southern section of the camp of the tribe of Israel. And so when you think of the, the, the camp set up on the northern territory of Moab here in Shittim, on the southern border of the children of Israel's camp are the Midianites, are the Moabite people. And therefore, our suggestion is that it's the Simeonites who have opened the doors, as it were, to let the Midianite women into the camp. But there's a great lesson from the Simeonite people. When you just look at the maths there, 59,300 down to 22,200, it's fair to say, isn't it, that approximately, it's clearly not an exact number, but approximately two-thirds of the Simeonite tribe have, as it were, been wiped out, which means that we're left with a third. And it seems to be a lovely lesson in all of this, in this catastrophe that when we come to Deuteronomy 33, time won't allow us to go there, the Simeonites aren't mentioned. When Moses goes through the tribes of the children of Israel, he makes no mention of the tribe of Simeon. Yet in Revelation chapter 7, the Simeonites are there, and they're sealed. And so this third that remain, they perhaps are an example to us of what we see at the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 13, where in verse 9 we read, Of Israel, I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. Do you notice the contrast? The Simeonites, chapter Numbers 25 and verse 1, heard Numbers 25 and verse 2, the call of the daughters of Moab. But now, Zechariah 13, Israel will call on the name of Yahweh, and I will hear them. 
I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, Yahweh is my God. And there's one final lesson, which is there on the map for you, on the screen. What do you notice, young people particularly, you look at this map carefully, what do you notice about the tribe of Simeon? Can you see it? It's there in the south. You think, well, they'd never let them be in the south. We saw what happened when they were in the south. They let the Midianites in. But what else do you notice? Who is surrounding the Simeonite tribe? They haven't got any borders, have they? They don't have any borders with the Philistines, with the Amalekites, with the Edomites, or the Moabites. No. Judah has surrounded them. And so there's a great lesson here for us, isn't there? If we are to avoid catastrophe in the wilderness, for all our wrongs and failings, you've got to grab hold of the lion of the tribe of Judah. I hope you're still in chapter 25 of Numbers. We see, don't we, that Israel, verse 3, joined himself. Just look in the margin there, the revised version margin. Uh, the authorized version margin doesn't comment, but the revised version margin says, yoked. The children of Israel yoked themselves to Baal Peor. Young people, there is a huge lesson there for us. We cannot yoke ourselves to the Midianite women. We can't yoke ourselves to the daughters of Moab. We've got to be separate. We stand on the edge of the land. You've got to learn the lesson. Choose your relationships carefully. Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so the plague begins to come through the camp. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the heads of the people, hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said to the judge of Israel, slay ye every one his men that were joined to Baal Peor. And there's no record, there's no record that anything now happens. Moses is asked by the Lord, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take the heads, that means the chiefs of the people, and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned. Moses said to the judges, slay every one of his men that were joined to Baal Peor. It's not exactly what God asked, but that's what he calls out. But there's no record of it happening. The record goes on to tell us of another man. Moses, it seems, for all his callings out, is unable to effect change in the camp of Israel. Verse 6, behold, one of the children of Israel. Now, I want you to note that phrase, one of the children of Israel. We know who it is. We're told who it is in verse 14. It was Zimri, the son of Salu, the Simeonite. But it doesn't say, behold, Zimri of the children of Israel. It says one of. Please keep a note of that. One of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So at the door of the tabernacle, you think the tabernacle is here in the middle of the camp. The Simeonite man has come brazenly through the camp of Israel 
without any regard whatsoever for his actions. In fact, he comes, doesn't he, to show to his brethren, look what I've got, look what's on my arm. As he, in the most blatant and brazen fashion, waltzes through the camp of Israel with this Midianite harlot on his arm. And at the sight of the tabernacle, the sight of all the congregation, they're weeping at the door of the tabernacle. There's nothing. People are unable to do anything about it. They simply weep and cry. The call of Moses has gone up, and it seems the record tells that nothing is happening from it. Verse 7. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. Now, Phinehas is going to deal with the problem. Moses has asked people to deal with it. It's not being dealt with. There are, the children of Israel are weeping at the door of the tabernacle congregation. There is bedlam in the camp. The plague is sweeping through. And one man stands up, Phinehas. He stands up, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. Now, the language here is really important. We see, don't we, that Phinehas saw the problem and took a javelin. Now, those two Hebrew words aren't used together very often. The first time that they're used together, you'll remember well, is in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, you remember in verse 6 that when the woman saw, there's our word, that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant, it was a delight, it was desire, the lust of her eyes, she took it and did eat. And the curse came into the world. The problem of sin and death. The curse was brought onto the earth because she saw and took. And so we're seeing now in the actions of Phinehas, a man who is going to deal with the curse. In verse 8, we read that he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. He goes to the tent and he puts his javelin through both of them, the man and the woman. Now, why this is so interesting to us is because the word tent 
and the word belly. I've put them there on the screen. In the Hebrew are very, very similar words. Many of you Bible students will use Strong's numbers to help you search for words. And if you look on the screen there, you'll notice that the word for tent, Strong's lists as 6898 in the Hebrew. And the word belly, 6897. And so we see that these words are very closely linked. Now you might say, well, what's that got to do with the curse? Finney has his actions in putting the javelin through the tent and the belly, as it were, stops the plague. What's that got to do with the curse? Well, you remember that Balak asked Balaam on ten occasions to curse Israel. And we saw, didn't we, that word being used. It may help just to flick back to chapter 24 and verse 10, where Balak says to Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. Look at that word curse on the screen there. You'll notice that it's the strongest number, 6895. Isn't that remarkable? Because that is almost the same word that we read of the tent and of the belly. So when Phinehas stabs the javelin through the tent, through the belly of the man and the woman, he's dealing with the curse. He's dealing with the problem of the plague that the Moabites have allowed to come through the camp of Israel. And so through his actions, the plague is stayed and the curse is dealt with. And you'll see in Numbers 24 and verse 17 that when Balaam wanted to curse Balak, we know he was unable to, and he actually ended up giving seven blessings, of which one, in verse 17, we read, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Now we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the star that came out of Jacob. He was the one that would deal with the problem of the curse. But we read that a scepter would rise out of Israel. Now the scepter, of course, speaks to us of kingship, doesn't it? A scepter would rise out of Israel. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of verse 17. And shall smite the corners of Moab. Look in your margin at the word smite there. Do you see, the authorised version Martin tells us, smite through the princes of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. This is exactly what Phinehas does. He doesn't just deal with the Midianite woman, Cosby, 
the daughter of one of the chief houses of the Midianites? No. We see that the Lord said to Moses in verse 16 of Numbers 25, vex the Midianites and smite them. Now that word smite isn't the same as the word in verse 17 of chapter 24, but it is the same as the word in chapter 22 and verse 6, where you remember that Balak asked Balaam, curse these people that we may smite them. And now they are going to be smitten. And so in Numbers 31, we have the record of Moses avenging, or rather the Lord avenging, the children of Israel of the Midianites. So verse 2 of Numbers 31, the Lord says to Moses, Avenge the children of Israel of the Midianites. Afterward shalt thou be gathered to thy people. This is the final act of Moses. And Moses spake to the people, saying, Arm and yourselves to the war, and let them go against the Midianites, and avenge the Lord of Midian. Of every tribe a thousand, throughout all the tribes of Israel, send them to war. So they were delivered out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand of every tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand of every tribe and Phinehas. So we've got this trivial um, uh, blueprint, haven't we, of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 12,000. Here's the, and Phinehas. He's the one that's the Lord Jesus with the 12, as it were, thousand. And he goes and he slew, verse 8, the kings of Midian, Evi Rechem Reba, and of course, Balaam. And so he fulfills, in the first instance, the smiting of the princes of Moab. Phinehas is this type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, rather remarkably, his name means mouth of a serpent. If you look it up in Strong's, it will tell you that the, the word has got two parts to it. Uh, one part is the word, word serpent, which we have in Genesis 3. It's that word serpent. And the other half of the word is the word mouth. And so together, mouth of a serpent. Some suggest that um, as an Egyptian name, it would mean the bronze-coloured one. Now, I would suggest to you that it's much more likely it's the mouth of a serpent. But either way, the point that we're going to make is hugely relevant. This man, whose name means the mouth of a serpent, or the bronze-coloured one. Think of what bronze means in Scripture. It's the colour, isn't it, of man, the colour of the flesh. This man whose name means the mouth of a serpent or the bronze-coloured one stops the plague. He deals with the curse. And you remember in Numbers 25, we saw, and we don't say this in any way, to be a slight on the remarkable and wonderful man that Moses was. But we see that the record purposely shows us that whatever Moses is asking is not happening. And so what we have here is the fulfillment, I'd suggest, of Romans 8. Keep a marker, but come with me to Romans chapter 8. 
In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul has inspired his need to talk us through the problem of the law and the need for us to stand in the grace given to us through the redemptive and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans 8, we read, verse 2, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. So Moses couldn't deal with the plague. He represents for us the things of the law. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And so Phinehas, the one whose name means the mouth of a serpent, in the likeness of sinful flesh, the bronze-coloured one, deals with the curse and condemns the problem of sin. Just flip to Hebrews chapter 2. It's another helpful reference for us in seeing the work of Phinehas. Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation, to make the atonement for the sins of the people. Phinehas, the bronze-coloured one, the mouth of a serpent, is able to make reconciliation. He's able to make the atonement for the people. And so come back to Numbers 25, where we see that Phinehas is elevated. He's elevated above his natural state. This is a man naturally who's of the line of Aaron. It was his grandfather. And yet he's going to be elevated above this. Verse 11, the Lord says to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, he shall have it, his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. And so it seems to me, brethren, sisters, and young people, that as this generation, this younger generation, come to the land, they we remember that They've had to go back. They were on the brink of the land in the south. And they had to go back in Numbers chapter 20. We saw, didn't we, all the way back to the Red Sea. And you remember that on the way they complained and they murmured. And because they murmured and complained about the manner and about their situation, 
God sent fiery serpents into the camp. And they had to learn, didn't they? This generation, the problem of sin. And so Moses had to make a serpent of brass and he had to put it on a pole, Numbers 21, that if anyone had been bitten, they could look up, they could look up at that serpent and if they had the faith to get out of their tent despite the fact that they had venom coursing through their veins and they could look up at that serpent, the problem of sin on the pole, then they would live. And so the penultimate lesson, which is Numbers 21, for that generation before they went into the land, was to understand the problem of sin, that sin needed to be placarded. Galatians 3, we don't have time to go there. Or John 12, verse 32, the Lord Jesus says, I need to be lifted up that I may draw all men unto me. The problem of sin had to be held up, crucified for all the world to see and to know and to acknowledge. And only those who acknowledge the problem of sin and in faith look up will be saved. But that wasn't enough. They needed to learn another lesson. They hadn't understood the problem of sin because here they are, they can see the Jordan. They can see the land, just like me and you. And yet still, they commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they got, get caught up with the sacrifices of their gods. They yoke themselves to Moab. They've not understood the problem of sin. And so now, God is not going to use a serpent of brass on a pole. Rather. He's going to send one, the mouth of the serpent, one in the likeness of sinful flesh, to make the atonement. They're going to have to understand that a man is required to make the atonement. And so Phinehas represents to these people everything about the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Psalm 106 that his actions are counted to him for righteousness. Will you turn to Psalm 106 and verse 28, where we read of our record that they joined themselves to Baal Peor and ate the sacrifice of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague breaking upon them. Then stood up Phinehas and executed judgment. Now, just as a note, We've seen, haven't we, Phinehas executing judgment, dealing with the curse, putting the javelin through the curse. But that Hebrew word, palal, is used on 84 occasions in the scriptures, and on 74 occasions is translated as prayed. And it strikes me as being a really important point for us at the moment. You see, most of us, all of us, I hope, are in our own homes. And it's not easy at the moment, is it, to carefully execute judgment in ecclesial life. We know we've got to stand up for the truth. 
we know we've got to have the zealousness of Phineas. So how do we do it in times like this? Well, brothers and sisters, young people, if nothing else, we do it through the power of prayer. We need to ensure that in our prayers, we consider the great lessons of the wilderness journey, that when we reflect in our prayers, on our ecclesias, on our families, and we worry about some of the difficulties and challenges, know that through the power of prayer, we are able to execute judgment. The psalm goes on to tell us, verse 31, that this, because he did this, it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, young people, you all know, don't you, that that phrase, counted for righteousness, is only used on one other occasion in the scripture, and it's of the man of great faith who believed in the Lord. It was, of course, Abraham. Abraham's faith was counted to him for righteousness. So we understand that Phinehas's actions, when he stands up and executes judgment, they're actions of faith. And so we're reminded that faith without works is dead. Phinehas shows us faith in action. I'd like you to come with me to Romans chapter 5, because in Romans 5, we see really clearly how the actions of Phinehas point forward to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the atonement. In Romans 5 and verse 11, we read at the end of the verse, now we have received the atonement. And we understand from the record in Numbers 25 that that's what Phinehas did. But look carefully. In Numbers 5, we've put the references there on the screen, we're told continually that sin came into the world by one man, Adam. And do you remember that in the Numbers record, in Numbers 25 and verse 4, for all the actions of many of the Simeonite men particularly, thousands of whom died in the plague, we were told about one man. I ask you to remember the phrase, one of the children of Israel. And I'm going to compare that to Romans 5 and verse 18. Therefore, by the offence of one, Adam, of course, but our comparison is Zimri, the Simeonite. By the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men, men unto justification of life. And so do you see that that one verse of Romans 5 captures for us what happened that day on the edge of the promised land, when one of the children of Israel, that Simeonite man, came into the camp, judgment came upon all men, the problem of the curse, the anger of the Lord was kindled, the plague went through the camp, but by the righteousness of one, 
And we know from Psalm 106 that Phinehas' actions were counted to him for righteousness. The plague was stayed. And so Romans 5.18, the free gift, although the wages of sin is death, and many more would have deserved to die, the plague was stayed. We just see on the screen there a few more links. In verse 1, therefore being justified, that word justified of course means being made righteous by faith. That's what Phinehas was made righteous for. For his faith. We see in the numbers record, or we saw in the numbers record, that God gave to Phinehas because of his faithfulness, the covenant of peace. And so we go on in verse 1 to read, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see also in verse 9, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. Do you remember in Numbers 25 and verse 11 that Phinehas, the Lord said, turned my wrath away. And through his actions, he made an atonement. And the Lord Jesus Christ has made the atonement for us. That all of us, the hundreds of us listening in this evening, we're conscious as we reflect on our day, we reflect on our week, of the fact that we continually sin. And we can feel, can't we? Yes, I can almost see the land, I can almost hear the Jordan. But I keep messing up, I keep falling short. What the law could not do in that it was weak, God sent his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that we might have a high priest touched by all the feelings of our infirmities. The Lord Jesus knows what we're like and the atonement's been made to reconcile us, to bring us to God. What a remarkable God our God is. And so as we bring our thoughts together, will you come to Psalm 110? We see, don't we, that Phinehas is given an everlasting priesthood. This man who, by natural descent, as the grandson of Aaron, was under the ironic order of priests. A priest that would live his life and die and his work would be done. But because of his faithful actions, this man is elevated above the Aaronic priesthood, above the things of the law. That although the law was weak, this man, through faith, was strong. And so he's given the covenant of peace, the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God in making the atonement. And so in Psalm 110, where we read of the Lord Jesus Christ being the king priest, the one who would be king priest forever, verse 4, after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, Melchizedek means, the record to the Hebrews tells us, king of righteousness. So Psalm 106, 
Remember that Phinehas had his actions counted for righteousness. The priest forever. Phinehas was to have the everlasting priesthood. Melchizedek was king of peace, king of Salem. We read in Psalm 110 and verse 5, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings. That's, that word strike is the same word in the Hebrew as Numbers 24 and verse 17, where Balaam prophesied of one who would smite the corners, or the, remember the margin said the princes of Moab. And you remember as well in Numbers 31 that Phinehas slew the kings of Midian. Well, Psalm 110 picks these things up. Um, and of course, in the psalm, we go on to read about the Lord Jesus Christ judging among the heathen. You see, Phinehas was a king priest. Do you remember that in Numbers 24, we read in verse 17 that a scepter would rise out of Israel? We know it's the Lord Jesus. But in the first instance, that man who was by natural descent a priest became the king priest after the order of Melchizedek in dealing with the problem of the curse. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, our final reference, we read of the Lord Jesus, the one who was after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 23, truly, they truly were many, the, the, the priests of the Aaronic order, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. He has an everlasting priesthood. Wherefore, he's able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession, to make the atonement for us. Brethren and sisters and young people, what a remarkable story the story of Phinehas is. Surely, as we stand on the brink of the Jordan, the last lessons for us before the Lord will come and take us across the Jordan into the promised land are to remember these things. I've put some take-home messages for us on the screen. Well, first, we need to know that the Father desperately wants us to come into the land, so much so, he gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deal with the problem of sin. So when you worry in your life, and I worry in my life, about how prone we are to sin and how often we fall short, remember that the Father wants to bring us to the land. We also need to remember not to be caught up in the thorns and the thistles with the Moabites. We've got to get on good soil and we've got to make sure that we learn the lesson of the Simeonites to hold on to the line of the tribe of Judah that we might come into the land. 
We've got to be prepared in an age that's so materialistic, where people are continually encouraged, young people, to go for the next promotion, the next best job, to reject the wages of unrighteousness and seek the wages of faith. Because the wages of faith, the reward of faith that was given to Phinehas is righteousness. So we've got to reject the wages of unrighteousness. And in the time that we're given, until the Lord Jesus Christ does come, let's make certain that in our families, in our ecclesias, to the best of our ability, in the brotherhood across the world, let's make sure that we act like Phineas, zealously for our God.